Bibles to the book of Mark. Book of Mark, chapter 10. We're continuing in the book of Mark, chapter 10. And we're in a section of the book of Mark really on, uh, you know, the kingdom and discipleship and teaching on humility and service. There are many parallels in the text we're going to look at today uh, with what we've already seen in chapter 8 and chapter 9. If you remember in chapter 8, Jesus heals a blind man and he foretells his death and resurrection and then teaches that if anyone wants to follow him, they must deny themselves, take up their cross to follow him. We learn that in chapter 8. And then in chapter 9, he heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And again, he foretells his death and resurrection and then corrects pride and wrong thinking in his disciples about his kingdom by teaching them that anyone who wants to be first must be last and servant of all. That's a head-scratcher, right? It's like, whoa, really? That's not, uh, that's not how we naturally think, is it? Not at all. And now here in chapter 10, he continues his teaching about humility and service in the kingdom of God. And we've seen that anyone who does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And in the dialogue with the rich young man, we learn that the first will be last and the last first. So it's this continual teaching because we're all kind of knuckleheads, you know. We don't get it the first time. <laughs> uh, so we need to continually be, be told and told and told. And they're right there in the presence of the Lord, and they're, they're not even getting it. Over and over again, he's teaching them these things. So the first will be last and the last first. Now, in our text last week, Jesus foretells his death once again, but this time with even more specifics about how it's going to happen, how he'll be mocked and spit on and cru then crucified, and on the third day, he will rise again. And in our text today, we're going to see Jesus correct James and John concerning their request to be exalted and seated at his right hand and at his left in his kingdom. Now, there's a pattern here of Jesus, and he's correcting the, the pride, really, in the hearts of his disciples. And you can see that. That's really the root of what's going on here. There's tremendous pride in the hearts of his disciples, and he is correcting that. He's teaching them what true discipleship looks like. Remember, he told them that to come after him, they would need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him, that those who wished to be first would be last and the last first. They had to receive the kingdom like a child. Notice I'm repeating this <laughs> for our own sakes and for my sake. The disciples, they anticipated Jesus ruling in an earthly kingdom. And Jesus is telling them otherwise, and they're not understanding him. The combination of these two ideas, Jesus the Messiah and being put to death, that made no sense to them. That wasn't part of, of what they had in their minds as, as God's plan for the kingdom of God and Jesus coming in his kingdom. Not to be put to death, that, that wasn't part of it. And then to add to that, that three days later he would rise again, that didn't make matters any easier for them either. They, they just didn't comprehend it at all. 
And so there's a central truth in these passages that, that really applies to us today, and that truth is this, that the way to greatness, the way to greatness in the kingdom of God is through humility, love, and service. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you get low, you humble yourself, you love, and you serve. Humility, love, and service are the marks of a person who is considered great in the kingdom of God. And we're going to see that once again in our text today. So look at uh, chapter 10, starting at verse 32. I'm going to read uh, through verse 45, and then we'll walk through it together. Mark chapter 10, starting at verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus, calling them to him, said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and give his life a ransom for many. And so we see in the first paragraph, verses 32 through 34, that Jesus is once again predicting his death and resurrection. This time he's giving more details. These are echoes of Isaiah chapter 53, the suffering servant of God. And we saw that even last time. And then James and John come to him with their request. That's where we're, we're going to zero in uh, in this message today, verse 35. So he's just told them he's going to suffer and die. <laughs> it's amazing to me in this context that James and John could come up with their request right after <laughs> what he just told them. Uh, Amazing. And James and John, they come to him. They're the sons of Zebedee. They come to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. So it's like, did you just hear what he said? <laughs> did you just hear that he said he's going to suffer and die? Amazing patience Jesus has here too, verse 36. He says to them, what do you want me to do for you? Now in Matthew, it's a parallel passage. We see that they actually come with their mother. And the three of them make the request of Jesus together. Now, Peter, James, and John, these are Jesus' closest disciples. That's another thing that I find amazing about this request. These are the closest ones. 
They were the ones he took with him to the mountain where they beheld him in his glory at his transfiguration. They were always his most inner circle of disciples. And so they come to him with this request, and they say, and he says, well, what would you like me to do for you? In verse 37, they just put it out there. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So here it is. Here's the request. Seems very surprising, given what we just read about him suffering and dying, and what we've been reading about, the teaching about humility and service as the path to greatness, and given that James and John were two of his closest disciples, that they would be thinking this way and asking this question. Now, in Jewish thought, the right hand was the, uh, the right hand of the king was the place of greatest preeminence in a kingdom. To sit at the right hand of the king meant that you were basically his right-hand man. We've heard that expression. So you're the number one guy right behind the king. And to be at the left hand would be second in preeminence in the kingdom. So James and John apparently expected Jesus to establish his earthly kingdom and enter into his glory, likely when they were going up to Jerusalem. Maybe that's what they were even thinking. That's what we're going here for. We're going here for the great battle. Jesus is going to take over, establish his kingdom, and we're going to be his right-hand and left-hand guys. And they wanted a preeminent place in that messianic earthly kingdom. And so even though they recognized Jesus as the Messiah, they completely misunderstood the nature of the kingdom Jesus came to establish. They completely got it wrong. And maybe it's because of their closeness to Jesus that James and John think they should be in preeminent place, places at his right hand and left in his kingdom. You know, this isn't a new thought or conversation. We saw in chapter 9, verse 33, that the disciples were already arguing with each other along the way about who was the greatest among them. And Jesus corrected them for it at a time, at that time, that they hadn't overcome their pride yet. You know, they're walking along the way, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. You can probably imagine it. Uh, you know, yeah, it can't be Matthew. He's that old tax collector. We don't like those guys. I mean, pfft, he couldn't even cast that demon out back there at the town, remember? Uh, you know, it can't be him. I'm greater than him. And no, I'm greater than him. No, I'm greater. They're arguing about it. And Jesus corrects them <coughs> for their pride. Now, before we start judging James and John, which is easy for us to do, right? We read this, we're kind of all puffed up, like, ah, they don't get it. What's wrong with those guys? Before we start judging them, we should know from the context that we see in Matthew 19 that Jesus had just told all of the disciples that they would sit on 12 thrones and judge the 12 tribes of Israel. We know that from Matthew uh, chapter 19. I'll read it for us here, chapter 19. So they had just heard these words. Peter said in reply, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother, or children, or lands, for my name's sake, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So, I'm sure James and John were excited to hear about that. 
and were probably formulating in their minds how great this was going to be and thought, you know, that's coming up pretty soon probably. Let's just see if we can get there at his right hand and his left hand and have those preeminent spots in the kingdom. But they missed that last verse, didn't they? That many who are first will be last and the last first. They, that one kind of just drifted through. They, they didn't catch that one. They didn't hold on to that last part. So before we're so quick to judge them, let's just understand where they are in their walk with the Lord at that time. The mystery of the cross had not yet been accomplished, nor was the grace of the Holy Spirit poured out into their hearts. So their stumbling over greatness in the kingdom is really not that surprising. And we would probably stumble the same way ourselves if we're honest. Look at verse 38. So there was the question, grant that we would sit at your right and at your left. And Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized, he asks them. Now, I love and am especially thankful for Jesus' response. You know, he would have been fully justified in openly rebuking them right there in front of everyone for their ambition and their pride, especially in light of everything he had been teaching them. He would have been fully justified in openly rebuking them and being harsh with them. But despite the audacity of James and John in this situation, Jesus, he doesn't rebuke them directly, but he lets them know that they really don't realize the implications of their request. You really don't know what you're asking, guys. (laughs) Do you really know what you're asking? In the kingdom, the way to glory is sacrifice, service, and suffering. In the kingdom, exaltation involves lowliness. And he asks them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Now, what does that mean? What what does he mean, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? What is he talking about there? What does he mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, A cup is usually a symbol of joy and salvation, or sometimes a symbol of joy and salvation. We see that in the Psalms. But more often, the cup is a symbol of the wrath of God. You see that quite often. The full cup of the wrath of God being poured out. The symbol of the wrath of God. So to drink the cup means to have that type of experience. To suffer and to die the way Jesus is going to suffer and to die. Are you able to drink that cup, he asks them. Because I'm headed for suffering and death. Are you able to drink that cup? And here the word baptism, it's not referring literally to a Christian baptism, but it's a metaphor to be immersed in calamity and suffering and death. Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am going to be baptized with? I am going to suffer greatly, experience the full wrath of God, Jesus says, and I'm going to die. He just told them that. Are you able to drink that cup and be baptized with that baptism? Are you able to do that? Are you able to have that kind of suffering and death? Now, sometimes we're like James and John, aren't we? Sometimes we ask things of the Lord when we really don't know what we're asking. And and sometimes we get upset, don't we, when we pray and what we prayed for doesn't happen. 
or it happens totally differently than what we wanted. And in those times, as I was reading this text, you know, in, in those times, maybe I should be asking that same question, you know, are you really sure you know what you want? You really sure you know what you're asking for? That, that's probably what God's thinking when, when we're asking for those things, and he's like, no, you really don't want that. <laughs> no, that's really not the way that should work out. And sometimes we get upset, but it's usually because we don't know what we're asking for. God has a better way that we don't understand. And so Jesus replies very gently to them with his own question. Are you able to drink the cup with, that I'm going to drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? You really don't know what you're asking. It reminds me of um, the Old Testament I was reading this morning. You know, when we approach the throne of God, let our words be few. <laughs> he is God in heaven, and we are man. And sometimes maybe we just need to not talk so much and just listen to what he has to tell us and seek his wisdom. Pray for his mercy and grace on our souls. Maybe not ask for so much. Let our words be few. <clears throat> and so he puts the question to them. Now look at their quick response, verse 39. They said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So they don't even hesitate to answer. Oh, yeah, we can do that. Absolutely. Very direct, too. We are able. Not, well, hmm, let me think about that for a minute. What do you mean by the cup, Jesus? And what do you mean by the baptism? What is that the one of John? They, they're not even asking any more questions. Like, oh, we can do that. So eager. So ignorant. <laughs> <laughs> right? Often in our ignorance, we're quick to answer, aren't we? Oh, yeah, sign me up for that. Like, you don't even know what you're asking. They don't even know. <clears throat> so they still likely don't understand what it is to be a true disciple of Jesus, that they will take up a cross and suffer and follow him. They have this view of this glorious kingdom which is why they're so likely in to, to respond so quickly. And so Jesus does predict their suffering here, and his prediction holds true. According to Acts chapter 12, James was killed at the hands of Herod Agrippa I, probably around A.D. 44. So James does uh, die as a martyr for the Lord. Now the New Testament does not record the death of John, Early and more widespread tradition of the church is that John, the apostle, lived to an old age and died a natural death in Ephesus in Asia Minor. But his death came after suffering greatly for the Lord. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, suffered greatly for the Lord, and that's where he was given the vision of the book of Revelation. So both James and John did suffer greatly for the Lord and gave their lives for their faith. Verse 40 continues his answer, but to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And so Jesus continues his answer that those positions of greatness have been reserved for those for whom it has been prepared. They were decreed in God's eternal counsel and won't be altered by Jesus at that time and that moment. 
That decision is made. Those positions were prepared beforehand for specific people. Now, I find his, an his answer very interesting. He doesn't say yes or no. He could have easily said, no, it's not you guys. Sorry. That's Moses and Elijah. Remember, we saw them on the mountain. I mean, he could have said anything like that. Where he, he could have said, yes, today's a great day for you. Those positions were prepared for you. You know, he could have answered specifically, but he did not. Like, why not, Jesus? Why don't you answer specifically? It's very interesting that he doesn't say yes or no or give any specifics. He just says, they've already been prepared for, but he doesn't let you know who. And I think he doesn't say no because he doesn't want to shame them in front of the, the rest of the group, perhaps. Perhaps he's protecting their hearts and doesn't want to shame them. And he doesn't say yes because if he says yes, boy, the other ones are really going to be upset and envious and stumble over that because we're about to see they're already getting upset about this whole thing. And so he doesn't say yes either, lest the others stumble over it and become envious. Rather, he leaves it open for everyone to aspire to those positions of greatness and to work to achieve them through their willingness to serve and to love. Maybe one of those positions is reserved for you. That would be a shocker for me. <laughs> like, me? It, it, it could be. So all can aspire to that greatness, how? Through service and love and humility. So it's open for all to aspire to it and to work for it. <clears throat> Verse 41. Now, when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. To be indignant is to be mad. They're angry. Just use simple words here. They're angry. They're upset. They don't like this. The other disciples probably felt that James and John, by asking for these positions of preeminence, had been plotting against them, maybe. Oh, those guys were always close to Jesus. Now they go pull this. Look at what they're doing. They even got their mom involved. You can hear all the bickering, right, going on in the <laughs> background. What are they doing? <clears throat> it seems that all of the disciples had not yet taken to the heart the lesson that we learned in chapter 9, verse 35, that if anyone would be first, he must be last of all. So because they're fighting now and upset, maybe they were mad just because they wanted those positions and they didn't ask first. Who knows? We don't know for sure. All we know is that there's a lot of arguing going on. They're not really getting along very well. And you can see here what pride does in our hearts, doesn't it? You see how pride creates disunity? Think about that. The most times you probably have had strife and difficulty in your lives is when you're, you are dealing with pride, either in your own heart or in someone else. Maybe you have pride in your own heart and you're judging someone else because you think you're better than them. That creates, pro that creates disunity and discord. Or maybe you have felt hurt by someone else. And typically that hurt is coming from a, their position of pride and judgment against you. Oftentimes that's the root of it when it really comes down to it. When the church typically experiences discord and disunity, the real root of that is typically pride. And you can see it here in the disciples. 
The pride they have in their hearts is creating discord and disunity within them and among them. So often we are trying to take the little speck out of our brother or sister's eye while we have this huge log coming out of our own. And a heart and spirit of humility really helps us better to see. Let's take the log out of our own eye before we start trying to take the speck out of our brother or sister's eye. And so Jesus sees all this. He sees all this going on. And look at verse 42. He calls them to him. Come on, gather around. Everybody gather around. He says, come on. And he tells them this. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, which we know he is the Son of Man, he has declared that. Even I, the Son of Man, Jesus says, came not to be served but to serve. If anyone has a right to be served, it would be me, the king of the universe. But Jesus didn't come to be served. He came to serve. Not only that, to give his life as a ransom for many. So here is the clear and concise teaching from Jesus on how to lead and behave in the kingdom of God. I don't need to write a 10-volume book series on servant leadership. <laughs> it's right here. The way to lead is through service. It's just that simple. The best way to lead, the biblical kingdom way to lead others is through service. And the way to behave, even if you're not in a position of leadership, right now he's speaking of those who are in leadership positions, but even the way to act, even a way of being for the believer in the Lord Jesus is to behave with humility and love and service to others. Those who lead in the kingdom of God do not oppress others with their authority and lord it over them. That's what he's teaching. Those who lead care for others and work to ensure their needs are met and their happiness. Those who lead practice the golden rule. What's the golden rule? Matthew 7, 12. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Those who are the lowliest and most humble here will be the greatest and most exalted in the kingdom of God. And even here, in this specific moment, Jesus is not lording his authority over his disciples. He's treating them very gently, isn't he? He's being their tender shepherd who loves his sheep. It would have been so, he would have been so justified to say, enough of this, this is enough, I've already had enough of that arguing on the road, and now we're arguing again. And he could have been very harsh with them, but he's not. He's very gentle. And he uses this entire incident to teach the necessity of humility and service, especially for Christians who are leading. Now, this is the opposite of what the world teaches. The world teaches that you spend all your energy to get to the top, and you climb over the backs of as many people as you need to to get there. 
And then once you're at the peak, you cause others, everyone who is reporting to you, to feel the weight of your authority. And you come down hard on people. And you're the boss. That's what the world teaches. And you got to establish your power and authority to get people to respect you. If you don't, they won't respect you. I've been in corporate leadership for 25 years. This is, these are the nuances you hear. But it's not so in the kingdom of God. It's the opposite. You can take the pyramid and turn it upside down. Where the leader in the kingdom of God serves the rest, loves the rest, is humble. It's the opposite of what the world teaches. And then he shows himself, verse 45, as the prime example of this. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so Christ, as the example, is there, he's there, he is our ultimate example and motivation. How would Jesus handle this situation? How does Jesus lead and love and serve? Even as the Son of Man that we saw in Daniel chapter 7. The Son of Man who has been given a kingdom and dominion and authority and power. He still leads by serving. Jesus, from all eternity, the all-glorious one, humbles himself. He becomes a man. Not with the purpose of being served, but of serving. We're going to see in a little while, he even washes the feet of his disciples. They should have been washing his feet. He even washes the feet of his disciples. And then his service ultimately involves giving his life as a ransom in the place of many. This passage is clearly teaching us the substitutionary atonement of Christ for our sins. So the image here is a ransom. The ransom was a price to be paid for the release of a slave. That's what a ransom is. Jesus then is saying that he came into this world to give his life. He gave himself in exchange for us, for our sins. He bore on himself the wrath we deserve for our sins. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. The Bible tells us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is clear. And so we deserve death for our sins. We deserve the wrath of God for our sins. That is a debt we can never pay on our own. You will never work enough. You will never be clean enough. You will never be pure enough. You will never do enough good things. A lot of people have this thinking in their mind. Well, you know, why should Jesus let you into heaven, I ask them. Oh, well, I'm a pretty good person. And in their mind, they're thinking, okay, since I'm a pretty good person, the amount of good things that I do will outweigh the amount of bad things that I do. And when I get to, he- to, the, to heaven and judgment, uh, I'm going to be okay, I hope, is the, the way of thinking. But the Bible's clear. Even our 
greatest deeds, even our most greatest works, are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. We will never wash ourselves clean. It's impossible. And so Jesus comes, the perfect Son of God. He humbles himself, becomes a baby in a manger, in a feeding trough. You know the story. Born in a barn, laid in a feeding trough. How more humble does it get than that? Even in his birth, he's humble. He lives a perfect, sinless life as a carpenter's son. No glory in that. And then gives his life on the cross. It is flogged, is spit on, is killed brutally on the cross dying the death we deserve in our place, taking the full cup of the wrath of God on himself that we deserve for our sins so that by trusting in him, by faith in him, we could have eternal life. He sets the ultimate example for us. He pays the ransom for our sins. He took the death we deserve for our sins. And it's through believing in him his death, burial, and resurrection, that we can have abundant life and life eternal and not suffer the wrath of God we deserve. And so I beg you today, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, make today the day of your salvation. Trust in him. Love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Don't waste another minute of your life without Jesus as your Savior. And you can know for sure that you will spend life eternally with him and not suffer the wrath of God in hell where the worm does not die and the smoke does not end. Because hell is a real place. And those who haven't trusted in Jesus will spend eternity there. And so the message for us today is simple. Trust in the Lord Jesus and be saved and have eternal life. I think Philippians 2, 1 through 11, really summarizes the teaching here very well. Much better than my words can. The Apostle Paul says this, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, or count others better than yourselves, is a simpler way to say it. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
humility is the way to greatness. And we can have unity through humility for the sake of the gospel, I pray, in this church and in our families. You want peace and harmony and love in your family? You can have that through humility. You want peace and love and harmony in the church? You can have that, and you have it through humility. Paul's prayer for us is that we would have unity through humility for the sake of the gospel and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So remember, brothers and sisters, as we go from here today, humility, love, and service is the path to greatness. You want to be great in your family? Serve your brother or your mother or your sister or your father. You want to be great in the kingdom of God? Look around. Consider the needs of others more important than your own. And love and serve one another. Let's each day turn from our own pride and selfishness and consider others' needs more important than our own. Let's show kindness and compassion and love and patience with each other. And let's serve one another for the glory of God the Father.